Well, happy Easter, everyone. My name is uh, Matthew, one of the elders here. If you're a guest, we're, we're glad that you've decided to, to join us here this, uh, this Resurrection Sunday. Uh, if you are a guest and are interested more about the church, there's a membership class at my house on April 29th. That's a Saturday morning. And uh, no obligation to join the church if you attend that class. It's simply a breakfast where we just talk about how the church functions and operates and, and what it means to be a member here. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can register by just going to our website, thegatheringchurch.com, and there's a link there to register, or you can simply talk to me. Um, have, have you ever had a, um, a great coach or maybe a, a great teacher in school? Or maybe you've, you've had a, a great music teacher when I, was a, when I was a teenager and a young adult, uh, Phil Jackson was a great basketball coach. He led two different NBA dynasty teams. He coached the Bulls to several championships. He coached the Lakers to several championships. He was truly a remarkable coach. There was something about the way that he led and, and coached because he was this giant of a man, but he rarely reacted in the moment to what was actually happening on the basketball court. And because of that, he gained himself this reputation, this title of sort of being the Zen master, that he would just kind of be stalwart in the face of of his team going down the tube on the court. He led decisively, but he also had a cool as a cucumber kind of demeanor. Or maybe another question, have you ever had a, a great boss? Or what would make a boss, what would make a boss great? Easygoing? Toe the line, generous maybe? Or have you, ever, um, have you ever followed a great leader? What would make a great leader a great leader? I came across a story recently of uh, William Swenson. And he was an army captain. And he's actually one of the, uh, only one of two current active duty military members who are Medal of Honor recipients. And he received the Medal of Honor because of of an action he made in September of 2009. He and his men were engaged in a firefight in Afghanistan. And they came under heavy fire and and several of his men were wounded. To the point where a helicopter had to come in and and, and medevac many of his men out. And Captain Swenson went in and out of the kill zone many times. Carrying with him uh, his wounded and his men back to safety. And at great risk to his own life, he would just continue to return to this place of battle under heavy fire to grab his men and to get them out of harm's way. He led with decisive action. He was a strong, courageous leader. But there was something else about this man that made him truly great. Because there is a video of of actually this taking place. Because there's a body cam video from the man that's in the helicopter that's helping to load these wounded on board. And in the midst of battle, in the midst of this heavy firefight, as Swenson gets ready to turn back and to run back and save, save some more, he sticks his head into the helicopter, he leans down, and he kisses his sergeant on the forehead. There was a tenderness in this leader that made him great. There was a condescension to his men that made him a great leader. Or what about just regular people like you and me? What makes a good dad a good dad? 
What makes a good wife a good wife? What makes a good mom a good mom? As a church, one of the ways that we teach what biblical parenting is, we say that your child needs confrontation and affection. Confrontation is the strength to cross their will. It's to train them up the way that they should go. It's to teach them, to guide them, to instruct them. But it's also affection. It means to love your children deeply, to hug them, kiss them, have great affection for them, spend time with them, enjoy their presence, enjoy their company, radically include them into your life. You see, there's a thread that I'm trying to suggest with all of these examples that makes a person truly admirable. What makes someone truly admirable is found in a diversity of attributes. What makes someone truly admirable is found in a diversity of attributes. By that, I mean that there are seemingly paradoxical attributes, strength and humiliation, confrontation and affection, decisiveness and tender care, and that when those come together, these diversity of excellencies, these diversity of attributes, when they come together, that is truly admirable. So now, this is Easter. This is the celebration of the resurrection of the Son of God. This isn't going to be a sermon about how to be a better mom or a better boss or a better soldier. It's a sermon that attempts to put the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ on display. Because in Jesus Christ, there is the most admirable conjunction of these diverse excellencies. In Jesus Christ, there is infinite transcendence and infinite condescension. The polar extremes of what makes someone strong or the polar extreme of what makes someone condescending and coming to us is found and seen ultimately in Jesus Christ. So I invite you to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. And I'll read it to us here. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today as a joyful people, as a people who are delighted to celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God. And Father, we come as a people also who need to freshly see your beauty and your glory. We need for your Spirit to come and help us to engage our hearts so that we can say, like the disciples did on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us? This can only be done by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as a church, we have a vision statement to celebrate and display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And we're spending three weeks simply looking to the Bible and spending time to see how this vision statement is rooted in God's word. So last week was week one. Last week we looked at what does it mean to celebrate and display. 
And this week, today, Easter Sunday, is beauty and glory. Beauty and glory. What do we mean by beauty and glory? What does God's word mean by beauty and glory? And next week, we'll look at Jesus Christ, how all of the scriptures are pointing to him. I can't recapitulate everything that I said last week, but I'm going to briefly try to summarize it to help us launch into this point today. Last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through uh, chapter 4, verse 6, and we spent a lot of time kind of keying in on verse 318, which says this, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That text says that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. That text is saying the way in which we change, the way in which we become more like Jesus Christ is by beholding him. And we looked last week at how this word behold in the original Greek is the idea of beholding something as in a mirror. So a good translation actually is beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Our transformation comes as we behold the glory of the Lord like a mirror. And the reason that this idea of a mirror is so significant is because when you look at a mirror, you're actually gazing into something, but something is being radiated and reflected back to you. This word behold is interesting because it means to first behold and then to radiate the thing that you were beholding. So behold Jesus Christ and his beauty and his glory like a mirror so that his beauty and glory is then radiated back onto you. That the transformation, that becoming like God, becoming like Jesus Christ comes by gazing upon his beauty and his glory. As we have affections for Jesus, we begin to look like him. As we celebrate him, we will begin to display him. As we gaze upon him with eyes of faith, faith rather, and we look to him, our displaying then is a natural byproduct of celebrating him. It's the root determining the fruit. It's the root celebrating, beholding, having an outward manifestation in its life as the gospels say, you will know them by their fruits. It is impossible for a good tree to produce bad fruit. Likewise, it is impossible for a bad tree to bear good fruit. The display comes from celebrating him. The display comes from having affections for him. But now this week, we need to talk specifically about his beauty and his glory. And what I mean Specifically this week in this context, what I mean by beauty and glory is something specific. And I'll extract, unpack that for us. If beholding or celebrating is the first part of our vision statement, then it is absolutely crucial for us to understand what it is that we are actually beholding. And I would say that the most admirable thing to behold in all of the universe is the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And what makes Jesus Christ so beautiful and glorious is the conjunction of his diverse excellencies. That Jesus Christ is the most mighty and the most humble. 
that he is infinitely high and infinitely low, that those diversity of attributes are what make him so perfectly admirable. That as we gaze upon him, we are gazing upon a God-man whose beauty and glory can never be exhausted in our admiration of it. Your favorite movie will become boring one day. Money will become boring one day. Traveling more will become boring one day. Sex will become boring one day. But the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ will never, ever become boring. You will spend all of eternity gazing upon him. You will see him afresh with new entertainments and delights for your soul every single time you gaze upon him. Because he's infinitely beautiful and infinitely glorious, that means we can never possibly exhaust it. That means there's always more to him and all of eternity will be spent with our capacity for enjoying him to simply increase and increase and increase. And in Revelation 5, 5, and 6, we have this perfect description of Jesus Christ. In verse 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And in verse 6, he is called the Lamb that was slain. The lion in verse 5 and the lamb in verse 6. We've been saying it all morning. He is the lion and he is the lamb. And that is what I mean specifically this morning about beauty and glory. I mean his glory is seen in his lamb, excuse me, in his lion likeness. In his transcendence, in his power. And his beauty is seen in his lamb likeness. In his humility. In his condescension to us. And my friends, there is something remarkable that is happening in this text this morning. This text, I don't think this is a hyperbolic statement, although preachers are constantly giving hyperbolic statements, saying they're not hyperbolic statements, but that's whatever. I think this text gives us the most dramatic example of anywhere in the Bible of people falling down in all-out worship. The most dramatic example, dramatic example in all of the scriptures of people falling down and worshiping is in this text Right here. Hold on to that thought while I quickly show us why I think that is. Look at verse 1. I didn't read it, but I'm just going to read it to you for context. Verses 1 to 4 said, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with it uh, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. What's with these scrolls? There is something that's written on both sides of these scrolls with seven different seals. These scrolls represent the decrees of God concerning what will happen in the future. You see it in the next chapter. In the next chapter, chapter 6, one seal after another is opened and more and more is revealed about the judgments that are coming on the earth. So the scroll, excuse me, the scroll contains God's plan for the future, the struggles and victories of the gospel as well as the judgments on those who rejected. This scroll is of utmost importance. This scroll has unparalleled significance. This scroll contains within it God's sovereign will for the destiny of all things. 
But verses 2 and 3 says that there's no creature in the universe who can open it. There's no one there that can execute the final decrees of God. And the fact that there is no one that can open this scroll is the cause for some great weeping. Verse 4. But at the conclusion of this text, there is a complete and all-out worship. There is a complete, all-out, 180-degree turn. And I'll read that to you in just a moment. But the cause for this worship is at least twofold. One is that the scroll that was longing to be opened was opened. But the second reason for this kind of worship was marveling at the one who could actually open the scroll. Because there was only one. There was only one who could actually open the scroll. Only one who is a lion-like lamb is able to open the scroll. Listen to this description of one who is lion-like and lamb-like from Jonathan Edwards. So great is Christ that all men, kings and princes, are as worms of the dust before him. He is so high that he is infinitely above any need of us. He is above our reach, that we cannot, profitably, we cannot be profitable to him, and above our conceptions that we cannot even fully comprehend him. Christ is the creator and great possessor of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord of all. His knowledge and wisdom is without bounds. His power is infinite, and none can resist him. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely terrible. He's a lion. And yet he's a lamb. And yet in Jesus Christ, there is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take careful notice of them. He condescends graciously, not just to angels, humbling himself to behold the things that are done in the heavens, but he also condescends to such poor creatures as sinful men. Even to those who are of the lowest rank and degree, Such are commonly despised by their fellow creatures, yet Christ does not despise them. Christ condescends to take notice of beggars and people of the most despised nations of men. He that is thus high condescends to take gracious notice of the little children. What is even more significant is that Christ takes a gracious notice of the most unworthy, sinful creatures that have no right to ask anything of God. And those that have infinitely offended God's holiness and character by living sinfully and selfishly as a law unto themselves. He's both. And at looking at this kind of figure, it causes this scene to happen. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And each sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature 
every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's what happened when they beheld this lion-like lamb. So let's look at each of these in brief. The lion. Lion is an animal who makes prey of others and who is strong and wild and majestic and dangerous. And this text is a prophecy from Genesis chapter 49. A lion of the tribe of Judah. But what does it mean practically? Let me try to get this on the ground for us. What does it mean practically that Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It means, my friends, that we all long for a sense of justice. There's a place in N.T. Wright's book, Simply Christian, where he describes this longing for justice that we all have. And he simply says, look, the world is not the way that it should be. Chemical weapons being used on children in Syria is not the way that it should be. Nazi Germany is not the way that it should be. Racism running through this country leading to slavery and segregation in schools and unjust police brutality is not the way it should be. The evils that have been done to you and me, wronged by your parents, abused by a boyfriend or a spouse, sexual assault, passed over for promotions for unjust reasons, lies told to you, people manipulating you, people cheating you, stealing you, insulting you, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. It's wrong. The evils that you have done to other people, the people that you've hurt with your hands, the people that you've hurt with your words, the promises you haven't fulfilled, the ways that you've been lazy, the ways that you've forgotten the poor, the widow, the orphan, the ways that you haven't cared for, the downtrodden. My point is simply that it isn't very hard for us to look at the world around us and see that it isn't the way that it should be. And there's this longing inside of us for a sense of justice, for the world to be set to its rights. Even if I look inside myself, I see that I'm not even the way that I should be. I don't love my children and my wife the way I should. I don't... I, 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 I gravitate towards depression. And oftentimes when I gravitate towards depression, it's, it's inexplicable. Things in my life are fine. Things in my life are even good. But there's this fog that comes over me. There's an incongruity in my own psychology. And the way that I even relate to the world, it's not the way it should be. I sense it even within myself. You sense that in yourself. That you're not even the way that you should be. You're cold towards things that you just know you shouldn't be cold towards. You're hard towards things towards the, the things that you know you shouldn't be hard towards. You gravitate to things that you know you shouldn't gravitate towards. There's, even within ourselves, the signpost that things aren't the way they should be. And things need to be reordered. Things need to be set to their rights. Because if there's that longing within us, 
if we can see by looking at the world and we can see by observing our neighbor and we can observe our own lives and we can observe even within the things that we've done, that's something that we have this common, this common agreement that things aren't the way they should be, then there must be the way that they can be righted. Or at least there must be a sense in which things should be. And we look to so many places. We look to so many places to right the wrongs. Politicians make promises. Relationships make promises. Idolatry in our lives always makes promises. But everything ultimately keeps falling short. But there is a king. There is a lion from the tribe of Judah. And he is going to set the world to its rights. Every wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be overturned. This text says that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah of the root of David, which means that he is the true and rightful king of Israel. Even more, he is the true and rightful king of the world. And when this king comes, he will come with a rod of iron that will bring justice to the earth. Listen to Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' description of this. Jesus Christ will come again and will appear as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will appear in infinite greatness and majesty. And he shall come again in glory with all his holy angels. And the earth will tremble before him and the hills will melt. The devils tremble at the thought of his appearance. And when that time comes, the kings and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men shall hide themselves in dens, in the rocks of mountains, and they will cry to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the wrath of the lion. No one will be able to stand before this great and infinitely powerful king but two he's a lamb and a lamb is easily preyed upon as an animal it is weak it's it's harmless it's lowly it's even sheared for our clothes and killed for our food and practically practically it simply means that we all have a sense of the desire to belong That we are a weak and that we are a broken people. It means that we all long for some kind of embrace. And when Jesus Christ comes to us, again Jonathan Edwards, Jesus Christ will at the same time appear as a lamb to his saints. He will receive them as friends and brothers, treating those who believe and have awaited his return with infinite mildness and love. The church shall be then admitted to him as his bride and that will be their wedding day. The saints shall all be sweetly invited to come with him to inherit the kingdom and to reign with him in it for all eternity. Jesus, the Lamb of God, invites his people to come to him and trust in him. With what sweet grace and kindness does he invite us to fellowship with him by his spirit. He is a lion and he is a lamb, my friends. Infinite highness and infinite condescension. Infinite justice and infinite grace. Infinite glory and lowest humility. Infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. An exceeding spirit of obedience and supreme dominion over heaven and earth. 
absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation, self-sufficiency and entire trust and reliance on God. And why is this so significant to us on Easter? Because the place where we truly behold his beauty and his glory, the place where we truly behold his lion-like lamb, his lion-like lamb nature is on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ conquers all the powers of darkness, of evil, of your sin, and he doesn't do it in great power. He does it in ultimate humility and weakness. I said last week, and our brother Chris said in his prayer this morning, that we see his glory and that he upholds the atomic particles of galaxies and galaxies and stars and stars of things that we will never know and see. He is that powerful and transcendent above us. And yet that's not the ultimate place where we behold the fullness of his glory. To behold the fullness of who he is, to truly behold the God-man Jesus Christ, we must ultimately behold him at the cross. Because at the cross is where we see that he actually does have the power to forgive sins. He's God. He has the power to forgive sins. And he does it through ultimate weakness. You know, there's a, there's a place where Athanasius, one of the church fathers, said that when you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you see what he described as the divine dilemma. Because there was only one way. There was only one way, one way. There was no other possible way for you and I to be saved. It had to be the God-man. It had to be the God-man, Jesus Christ, because only God could save us. But by taking on our nature, by taking on our flesh, he died as a substitute in our place and on our behalf. And that was the great dilemma, as Athanasius called it, that only God, becoming a full man, Infinite power and infinite meekness could actually and possibly save us. Again, Edwards, and this isn't the last Edwards either. He appeared as a lamb in the hands of his cruel enemies, as a lamb in the paws between the devouring jaws of a roaring lion. He was a lamb actually slain by this lion, and yet at the same time, he was the true lion of the tribe of Judah. He conquers and triumphs over Satan, destroying his own devourer. In Christ's death on the cross, we see the glorious strength of a lion destroying his enemies as he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And here's the point. In Christ's greatest weakness, he was the strongest. In his greatest weakness, he was the strongest. He wasn't the strongest when he spoke galaxies into being. He wasn't the strongest when he spoke you into being. He was his strongest. He actually conquered sin, death, and the devil and redeemed us back to God when he was truly his weakest. My friends... It was my rebellion and your rebellion that put Jesus on the cross. And in his moments of weak, his weakest moments of suffering, he was at his strongest. And that is the ultimate paradox. And if it's true for him, then it must be true for you and me.
We sang this morning, ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. That means that when the clouds of life are pressing in, when the things of life are coming upon us, that the cross and the grave are even ours. It means that in our weakness, we actually are our strongest. It means that the new ethos, the new ethic of the kingdom of God is to conquer through weakness. Forgive them for they know not what they do was the cry of Jesus on the cross. Is it striking to you that as they're viewing him in Revelation chapter 5, they, say that he, they see him as a lion-like lamb. I know I've been saying this the entire sermon, but think about that for a minute. When they view the ascended Lord, the one who made everything and upholds everything, and they get a glimpse of him, he still looks like a lamb. You will gaze upon Jesus Christ for all eternity, and he will always be a man. He will be a man, and he will have scars on his hands. He's a man. He is a man in all eternity future. That means that when he was the weakest and he became the strongest, that marked him and stayed with him for the rest of his existence for all eternity. It means that your trials, it means that your struggles, it means that the things that have been done to you will be used by the sovereign Lord for your very good. And it means that you will be like Jacob, who learned to walk with a limp. Because only after walking with a limp did he truly and actually see the beauty and the glory of God. But my friends, we so often forget. We so often forget when we're in the midst of the struggle when we're in the midst of the trial, when we've been burned in a relationship, we so often forget the way is weakness. We just forget. We leave relationships. We leave churches. We just, we, we just, we just, we just hit the eject button too much. We forget. But my friends, even in those moments, even in those moments when we forget, when we fail, when we leave churches, when we leave relationships, the gospel is still the power of God to save for you. And in the midst of your rejection, and in the midst of your rebellion, the grace of God still comes to you. The grace of God does not come to you because you did it the right way. The grace of God is for sinners like you and me. The friendship of God the infinite condescension of Jesus Christ will constantly and forever be pursuing you. Listen to this final comment from Edwards, and we'll close. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, invites his people to come unto him and trust him. With what sweet grace and kindness does he invite us? Jesus The Lion of Judah invites his people to come to him in his glorious power and dominion for defense and shelter amidst the storms and struggles of this life. Would you choose for a friend a person like Christ with such dignity 
It is a thing common to our experience in this world to have those for our friends who are much above us because we look upon ourselves as honored by their friendship. Thus, how much a young inferior maid would be pleased to have a great and excellent prince to give his dear love to her. This is the stuff of fairy tales. But Christ is infinitely above you and above all the princes of the earth, for he is the king of kings. So honorable a person as this offers himself to you in the most nearest and dearest and intimate of friendships. Christ will give himself to you by faith. With all those various excellencies that paradoxically meet together in him, to your full and everlasting enjoyment, he will forever after treat you as his dear friend, and you shall always be where he is, and shall behold his glory and dwell with him in the most free and intimate communion and enjoyment. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for the beauty and glory of your great son. And we are so grateful for the gospel. The good news of the gospel. That we can be brought into friendship and fellowship with this great God-man. We want to celebrate and display his beauty and glory. We want to behold his beauty and glory. And we want to behold it here on this, of all days, Resurrection Sunday. The day that we see the convergence of your diverse excellencies. We're grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the point in our service where we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is for those that are Christians and A Christian is one who's repented their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's one uh, who's been baptized. And um, so if you're part of another church and that describes you, you're welcome to partake with us. If that doesn't describe you, then we encourage you to not partake of this table. Instead, consider the words that were spoken. Consider how God would have you respond. And consider the message of the gospel this Resurrection Sunday. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave himself up for you. And he will condescend to you, and he will bring you to himself. If you would reach out in faith and believe on him. You can come up row by row. Bring the elements back to your seat. And uh, we will partake corporately together. One of our elders will come up and lead us together.